This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today has an intriguing title, and yet it's filled with horrific detail. The title, Pee-wee, Serial Killer or Homicidal Maniac, a novelized true crime story, Volume 1. And our author, O. Grady Query, who joins me from South Carolina. Welcome, sir, to the program. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Doing just fine. This story is really a true story with some fictionalized content. And you, as an attorney, represented an individual whose nickname was Pee-wee. That's right. I was appointed to represent Donald Henry Pee-wee Gaskins when there were three graves discovered in a little uh, small community in the Pee-wee area of South Carolina, right near the Lynch's River Swamp. How long ago did this story take place or begin? I was appointed in 1976, and so the murders occurred, obviously, before that. You've uh, termed him a homicidal serial killer. Were there additional murders that perhaps have been discovered besides the three you've mentioned? Uh, yes. At the time that I began representing him, it it uh, appeared pretty obvious that he had played a role in the murder of eight people, uh, buried two to a grave in those original three graves, and then another two bodies that were discovered shortly thereafter. As things began to unravel, it was it became more and more obvious that he was, in fact, responsible for a great many other murders. And as time went on, uh, I represented him in a number of trials and then in a sort of final wrap-up deal where we agreed to plead guilty to all of the remaining murders that the authorities knew about, at least, in return for life sentences as opposed to a death sentence. He was in and out of prison several times, also during that period where he was uh, an inflictor of great pain on individuals. Absolutely. He was in incarcerated first in a reform school and then in prisons beginning at age 13. And at the time that I knew him, he had been in prison more than half of his life, most of it in maximum security uh, in South Carolina, but he was also in maximum security in the federal prison in Atlanta. Your role was as defense attorney. What inspired you to tell his story, 472 pages? This was a... Uh, an interesting person in that he seemed to have a great deal of potential in terms of, of being a bright and personable person. He was very talented insofar as his employers reported as a mechanic and a hard worker, worked on the uh, roofing business, which here in South Carolina in the summertime is about as tough as it gets, and, um, and yet had this whole other life of crime and then which also included these uh, murders uh, a number of which almost all of the ones that anyone knew about at the time were people that were somehow involved in with him either romantically or as uh, 
fellow criminals involved in some uh, theft ring or car chopping ring, something of that nature. Was there anything that in your initial meetings with Pee Wee that indicated how deep his sociopathic personality actually ran? It was subtle at first because he uh, continued to deny most of the murders, and as it became obvious that the proof was overwhelming, he would sort of acknowledge it, but then uh, in a true sociopathic manner, he would justify it by the fact that he had concluded that there was no other way to handle things. That included the murder of a niece and her young friend, 16 or and 17 years old, I believe, or maybe 16 and 18, uh, that were killed because he believed that they had become so involved in, in with drugs that they were irretrievable, and uh, he had no tolerance for the use of drugs and was very intolerant, in fact, of misbehavior on the part of others. Incredible. How early did his crime spree begin? Crime spree begin? Well, as I said, he went to the re- he went to reform school when he was 13 years old um, for an assault on a young woman who uh, apparently displeased him. And, and there's it's unclear exactly what all the details were, um, but that may have been a sexual assault or it may simply have been anger. Um, he then he he was treated very violently while he was in reform school. Uh, I've confirmed the his tales of that treatment with others who were confined there during the same time. And then he learned at that time, because he was so tiny, he was the smallest um, among the people anywhere near his age, that uh, that by reacting with extreme violence when he was attacked, that he then gained a reputation and was left alone, sort of. And he carried that with him then when he went into uh, the maximum security penitentiary where he killed a guy who was, uh, without any question, the head of the inmate criminal enterprises within the institution. And he did that simply to take over and become the number one man. Did he also get released from prison following that incident, or was that uh, during his final incarceration? No, he was released uh, after that. Uh, the the nature of the fellow that was killed was such that he only had about five years added to his sentence for that. Of course, they were never able to prove that it was a, pl- a planned murder. He, he said it was self-defense. Um, but, yes, he was released, and then the, the majority of the murders were, uh, at least those that were discovered there just prior to my appointment as his attorney, occurred in the 70s, uh, and then he was in prison, first under a death penalty that was overturned on appeal, and then under numerous life sentences uh, for a number of years, and then uh, in the mid-80s, he murdered a fellow inmate on death row by using plastic explosives and blowing him up. Incredible. How long was your relationship with Pee Wee? It was over about a 12-year period. 12 years. There were, yes, there were a number of trials that were spread out over a period of time, and then there were um, appeals from those trials, and then we had a, a, a prolonged period of um, uh, representing him with regard to 
his the manner of which he was being incarcerated. He was still being held on death row, even though his all of his sentences had been commuted to life. Were you aware of the depth of his depravity while you were defending him? I became aware of it. Uh, you know, you don't really have any choice once you're appointed. So I was uh, in for the for the whole thing. His uh, the most alarming thing, I guess, came as he began to have enough. Uh, time and experience with me as his attorney that he told me things about many murders for which he was not ever caught and convicted. And those were troubling because we were, they occurred during the time that integration in the South was prominent in the minds of most people. And there was a great deal of difficulty for, um, for many people in, in trying to make the adjustments and Pee-wee became obsessed with the idea that uh, interracial marriage or dating was uh, just an unacceptable practice and he killed a number of people that he didn't even know as a result of that. Incredible. He was only five foot three, and uh, yet part of his strange behavior. Is it true that he also drove a hearse to some of the the burials of the, the, his victims? It, he did, and uh, in fact, drove the hearse around uh, to sort of increase his uh, reputation and notoriety, and buried and and bragged that it was a, a necessary tool in his trade. As you began to write this story and go back and probably do additional research, what did you discover that shocked you the most? I suppose the uh, incredible ability that he had to um, overlook the horror of his murders while holding himself and others to a pretty high standard in the way that we should deal with each other on a day-to-day basis. Who's your target audience? Who's the individual that's going to really find this not only intriguing but also benefit from the read? Well, I, I hope that people that enjoy um, murder mysteries and thrillers will will like it. But I think that uh, um, that also those who are intrigued by um, courtroom workings would uh, enjoy reading that portion of the book and i hope also that a, a look at him and in such um, an intense manner will help us to understand the effect that uh, environment can have on someone i don't believe that that was the sole reason for uh, his depravity but i think it certainly took him to a different level Counselor, how long did it take you to assemble the facts and put this into print? I would say close to 10 years because, as you said, as you look back on something, especially when it's been a good while, you have to go back and do a whole lot of reading and a lot of uh, fact-checking. Introduce this book to my listeners in a couple of sentences or maybe a paragraph or two. What is the key ingredient that you would say to get them interested in getting a copy of your book? Well, I spent literally hundreds of hours with Gaskins either in the courtroom or in interviews in preparation for trials. And I hope that I am have been able to show how he reacted to things and perhaps even give some insight into what his thinking was as he went through 
this very strange lifestyle. You've termed this Volume 1. Where is Volume 2, and is it in print already? Volume 2 is uh, in the galley stage. I'm doing the final read, and it should be in print within a couple of weeks, I think. And what is the focus of Volume 2? Is it his early life, later life, or just wrapping up the loose ends? Volume 1 goes all the way from from his early life through all of the murders, with the exception of the last one that he committed in prison. And Volume 2 deals uh, mostly with the trials, the appeals, some very uh, unusual things that occurred. He traded uh, uh, the information about the location of bodies to law enforcement for conjugal visits with his then wife hmm. and uh, some things that just haven't happened before in my career of 40 years in practice yeah it's, it's a bizarre bizarre tale what is the current status of peewee uh, peewee was executed uh, for the murder that he committed on death row so he finally did uh, meet an end. Uh, there was some, I guess, disagreement over the death penalty. Is that something that came up during the the trial process with, with him? It was. His uh, first death penalty conviction was overturned. Uh, he was then tried for yet another murder and given us a, a life sentence. That first death sentence was commuted to a life sentence. Then he was... There was an attempt to try him again under our new death penalty sentence that provided for the two-part trial that is common across the country now. And uh, that was not successful. So there's a, there's a great deal of attention paid to the death penalty issues as they emerged during those years. The conjugal visits for Gaskins uh, in return for information, do you feel that was a justified idea? I did. I did not have a true quarrel with that. His wife consented. Uh, it, it was not inappropriate in that moral context, and it gave closure to people who had no idea what had happened to their loved ones. So I thought there was a legitimate purpose that the law enforcement officers intend were were attempting to accomplish. How do you feel about your book as far as its uniqueness? Are there other books that deal with similar topic materials, but you feel yours stands out from the rest? Well, there have been some other books about Pee-wee, but they were simply, uh, and, and that they were well-written, but they were uh, more recitations of what had, was known in the newspapers. I think this is a much closer look. I think it's more in the the genre of In Cold Blood or some of those books that have tried to look in, into the um, mind and morality of the, of the people committing the crimes. This is an incredible story. Uh, Grady, were there challenges in getting this completed and getting it to print? Oh, there were. <laughs> it, uh, it obviously wound up being a much longer book than I intended, but I, I, I don't think that that you could tell about a, a murder without telling what really happened and trying to, to give some uh, information about the connection between the victim and the uh, murderer. Counselor, what's the positive underlying message that you want to share or the reader will get out of reading your book? 
I believe that we can learn something from thoroughly investigating the psyche of a person so troubled as this Donald Henry Peewee Gaskins. We can also learn something about what was wrong with our vision of how to, to treat young offenders and even older serious offenders when you know when you see what happened to him when he was very young. It's an intriguing story. Pee Wee, serial killer or homicidal maniac, novelized true crime story volume one. Our author O. Grady Query. Grady, where do we get copies of your book? It's available uh, online through uh, Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. It is uh, also available as an e-book, and it's available directly from the publisher author house. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing the background story of a very troubling and distinctive tale. Gives us insight into the early life and the background story of the mind of a serial killer. Thank you, Counselor, for joining me today, and I look forward to talking with you in the future about Volume 2 when it's released. Thank you, Jay. I'll look forward to that. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Indian Summer, A Love Letter to India and the Story of India 29. Our author, Arthur J. Frankel. Dr. Frankel joins me from, I believe, South Carolina. Welcome to the program. No, North Carolina. North Carolina. Well, I knew it has a C in it somewhere. So Carolina, North Carolina, <laughs> still a beautiful part of the country anyway. Uh, good to visit with you. Your story goes back uh, quite a distance. The Peace Corps was founded in 1961, has uh, visited and helped 139 countries. You were one of those initial volunteers, or at least among the first batch of volunteers, weren't you, back in the 60s? Right. We, um, I, was just, I, I had asked the Peace Corps when I got accepted to send me to some place that was more different than anything I'd ever known, and I got what I asked for. Uh, India was one of the first countries. Um, I think they went up to about 100, 140 programs before they finally left India, and we were number 29. So it's one of the earliest programs uh, that went to India, and one of the early programs for the Peace Corps in general. And that's why you've called it, or subtitled it, The Story of India 29. Right. We were the 29th program that went to India. Yes. What did that uh, program entail? 
Well, we were supposed to be teaching in uh, what's called teacher training institutes. These were newly developed two-year colleges, like a junior college for kids who graduated from high school to train primary school teachers. And these were established all over the Mysore state, which is now called Karnataka. There must have been about 60 of them. And our program was supposed to go into there in teams of four, four volunteers, to teach them, add to their primary school curriculum, uh, nutrition, sanitation, kitchen gardening, and uh, and that kind of stuff, things that they wouldn't normally be taught. Uh, we were just graduates from college. None of us had a degree in anything related to what we were teaching. And that was now the Peace Corps is quite different. If you want to go on the Peace Corps now, you have to be an expert, uh, some kind of an expert in what you're going to be doing. But in those days, they just took college graduates. And we took four, four months of training in Brattleboro, Vermont, where we were taught what we were supposed to be teaching and taught the language, which was an unbelievable, unbelievably difficult. Kannada, which is the language of my source state, um, is a 52-letter phonetic alphabet. And it is unknown to anybody in this country, practically. And we, they taught it to us with no books. We started mm. by them just speaking to us like we were two-year-olds and us repeating it. And that's what we did for four months. And in four months, four months of immersion, did you, did you learn sufficiently to communicate well? We did, um, at a good basic level. And when we got to India, we were given money by the Peace Corps to continue with tutoring. It turned out of the 40 of us, about six or eight of us got to some sense of fluency. The rest needed to use translators uh, for the time they were there. But we were very lucky because two of the four members of my team, uh, Kathy and I, were uh, got to be fairly fluent, and nobody spoke English practically in Anawati. To this day, I, I visit there every time I go back to India. To this day, almost nobody speaks English in Anawati. Whereas India itself, English has become quite common, but in the villages, no. So we were lucky that we had enough common to make it go. Of it. The, no. But I think that's the trick. When you go to a country, if you know the language, and you're in an area outside of the big cities, you get to, you, you get to know the people and how they live. And I think even if you go to Europe, if you know the language, you're in a much better shape than if you're going as a tourist. True. True. You you do have to know some of the cultural exchanges and, yeah. and how to how yeah. to properly present yourself so you don't embarrass yourself and get into trouble with the natives, uh, whether it's uh, France or, or anywhere in Europe or, or other parts of the world. Your photos on the uh, your photo on the cover of your book, is that actually India? Of course. That's uh, that's a, that that's an area by Mangalore, which is on the seacoast of the Arabian Sea. Um, it's very lush there. They got they get two hundred inches of rain a year. Uh-huh. And that kind of greenery the picture is rice paddies and palm trees in, in terrace because the area on the coast has got the uh, western mountain range, and so they have learned to terrace it. But that kind of greenery is a very common picture in the, in the coast of India. Even the rest of India after the rainy season, after the monsoon, is very, very green. It's uh, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful a photo of, uh, of that area. And yeah. Westerners, yeah. just in general... Think of India as Bombay, Calcutta, and the other large cities where it's just teeming with people wall to wall, and that's not the I, case. I, yeah, I would say if you're going to visit India, you, you visit the cities. I mean, it's an experience, but the real India is in the villages. 
And uh, it, when I was there, 90% of the Indians lived in the village. Now with uh, the, the economic boom in India and everybody going to the cities and becoming educated, uh, there's 30% of the people live in the cities, but still 70% or 700 million people live in the villages. And they surprisingly haven't changed much. When I went back to Anawati after 40 years, um, I was amazed at how little had changed. Uh, there were cell phone towers, and people did have cell phones. But the the sanitation was the same. The village looked almost like I hadn't left it. Um, so the villages seem to be stuck in time at this point. You visited India, or revisited, at least 25, 26 times since your initial yeah. visit. What is yeah. the one thing culturally that you discovered that was different from our preconceptions? Well, first, I think, which is fairly common in the third world, um, people were so kind and, and giving. And people who had barely enough to eat would be offering food. Uh, so the kindness was one thing that was very, very wonderful. The the food, of course, is a big draw for those of us guys. You can't get Indian food in a restaurant in this country. It's anything like what you get in people's homes. Um but I, it's hard to say. It's almost indescribable. The smells, the the way people live, the resilience of those people. I mean, there's people on the verge of starvation almost every day, and yet they seem to just keep plodding. It's a sense of a sense of wonder, a sense of joy, a sense of giving. That is really awe-inspiring when you're when you're there being part of it. As an outsider and looking at the Indian culture, did you find any concerns about crime and other things, at no. least when you first went there? I feel safer in India than I do in New York City. <laughs> I mean, there is, in, in a large city, just with every city in the world now, you know, industrialization does create a lot of crime uh, and drugs. They're having, they're having drug problems there, too, um, in the large cities. But in, in the villages... Um, no, I mean it's it's I'm, I'm it's perfectly safe. Even in the cities, I I walk with no fear during the day. But there's parts of the cities you don't go to, just like in New York or Chicago. Um, but in the villages, it's it's a, it's a it's a very pastoral way of life. Um, a lot of just people working hard to survive and uh, getting as much joy out of life as they can with their families. Because you have a background in. Uh, being involved with the Peace Corps, are you still involved with them? And if you are, why do you feel it would be a good thing for young adults to consider? Well, for, for the first part, yes. Well, my university, University of North Carolina Wilmington, we just were awarded a Peace Corps grant to establish a two-year program at the university, which I'm directing, um, for people who are going into their junior year who want to apply to the Peace Corps. They take a two-year special curriculum in addition to their regular courses, which will give them a step up when they make application to the Peace Corps. It's called the Peace Corps Preparation Program. So we just got that. I'm the director of it. Um, but going to the Peace Corps, I mean, I believe every American should get out of America and go into the third world somewhere. You can't. You come back changed. You cannot view the world in the same way when you've seen how people live in the rest of the world. And for those of us that went in the Peace Corps, we came back changed. I mean, I, we have a tremendous amount of poverty in this country, there's no question about it. But when you look at the poverty in the third world, it, you just can't look at it in the same way here. I mean, it, it is tragic enough, and we have enough tragedy here in this country, but it's just smothered by the, by the, by the poverty in India and in Brazil and other countries that have this kind of uh, situation. So it, 
and also politically. You can't look politically at the, at the world the same way that when you're isolated here in America and look at some of the petty issues that our government gets into. It, there's world issues going on here that, you know, you, you, you just can't look at this myopic view of America when you're viewing the whole world. This is what going into the Peace Corps does. You've titled your book, Indian Summer, A Love Letter to India. Who did you have in mind as you were writing this? What was your inspiration? Well, I, as I say, when I got back from India, I was changed. And I had stories and stories and stories that I would tell my family and my friends, but it, it, they never truly could understand. And as I continued to go back to India and my connection to the country got stronger and stronger, I wanted to tell the story. It took me 30 years <laughs> to start getting out of the writers. I've written many books, textbooks, but to, get, to write a trade book like this was something I'd never done, so I was always afraid of it. Fortunately, I, I had a, didn't have a diary, but I'd written letters home to my mother um, almost every few days, and she kept every letter. She was a tech uh, rat. And she gave me all those letters, so I kept them for years. I had taken hundreds of pictures with a little Minox camera that I had, um, so what I was able to do finally when I got decided I had to do this is I laid everything out on the floor and I started chronicling the pictures and the letters month by month with all of my memories and I was able to reconstruct at a very detailed level you know, what had happened to me. Um, and so the idea was to try to share. I, I wrote this for people to, to learn why India is such an incredible place, but it, frankly I also wrote this as a legacy for my grandchildren. I wanted them to know what their grandfather went through, and what why I am so crazy about India because they keep hearing stories. Yeah, but I, it, it's almost a travel log of, of of what India is today and what it was, and which hasn't changed much in the villages in any case. Oh, Dr. Frankel, in your book of 316 pages, what is the one story that's going to jump out and grab the reader? Oh, they've got so many. I think the thing that brings to mind is this, this, this story in Bombay. I took a trip around India. We were given one month to have a, to take a vacation. I went all over India, and my first stop was Bombay, which is now called Mumbai. And the thing that sticks in my mind, I, mean, I needed to write this home, it just stuck in my mind for years. As I was, travel, I was walking the streets, and I saw on the streets this probably 60, 70-year-old grandfather on a blanket. Was a, they were living on the streets. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people live on the streets, millions of them. Hmm. But this was a grandfather who was sitting on a, on a little blanket in this busy street with his probably six-month-year-old grandchild. And the passers-by were just avoiding the blanket. They would step on the blanket there. And he was playing with his grandson as my grandfather had played with me many, many years before in the midst of this incredible situation he was living in, but showing such joy, playing with his little grandson. I, I, I stood across the street just watching this resiliency in awe of it, and finally, after about 15 or 20 minutes, when I saw two conspicuous, I crossed the street and went up to him and took a 100 rupee note, which is a lot of money in those days, and put it in the little kid's hands and just bowed and said, Namaste, and walked away. I mean, that that's picture has stayed with me for almost 50 years. Mm. Incredible. Incredible uh, visual, just uh, from a creative standpoint. I can, I can be there with you in India as you went through that process. If a person wants to visit India, most of the travel 
you know, travel agencies and uh, individuals who advise travel to India will put them in the big cities and the, the typical travel. Do you have other suggestions or recommendations? Well, yeah. I did. First of all, if you go to India, you should go to the Taj Mahal. I've been there countless times. It is, you cannot see a picture of it that is equal to actually being there. It is one of the most incredible, incredible accomplishments of the human spirit that's ever been. Um, it's worth going to it. So you do spend some time in the Taj, and you will, you will also have to go to the, the the cities. But the trick is if you can connect with a travel agent who knows somebody in India that they, who will connect with you. A uh, family or a tour guide who, who will take you out into the villages where they know people. Um, it, you have to go with some support because you have to understand it is you have to protect yourself from getting sick. Um, which is very easy these days. It's, it's bottled water. In my day, there was no bottled water. You, 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 never, mm. you can never drink the water, <laughs> so there's lots of bottled water. Anyway. But if you can get into the villages and connect with some families or some some connection to the people outside of the city, you will get a sense of India that is that it's what truly India is 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 is. It isn't that the cities aren't real; they are the, the incredible diversity and and. Uh, is India is is there, and if you see one thing, you'll see another. I mean, it's the opposite. But it is in the villages where the soul of India is. Even even though the cities have become incredibly industrialized, and if you call make a call center to Sears and Roebuck, you'll call the you'll be calling India. Incredible. But um, the middle class has risen tremendously. But it is the soul of India is still in the villages, and if you can somehow get to them, it will make your it will enrich your trip. Um, there's only so many it's what they call beauty spots that you can right. go to yes. a tour of any country that, uh, but it's the people that make the difference share for my listeners the uh, the story about the Indian standoff on the bridge near Mangalore <laughs> that's so typically Indian to this day, I mean it's the same situation these days on the one way bridge <laughs> I've seen it Although the bigger roads and more highways and bigger bridges now, there's still in the village areas, there's still the one-lane bridges where you have to make a decision who goes first. (laughs) (laughs) And how long did that standoff take place? I think the standoff was about 30 minutes before Houston finally came and yelled at somebody to get back up. (laughs) Was that pedestrian traffic only? Was it pedestrian and auto? (laughs) Well, pedestrians always, that's the only way they get across the river, but they go on the side of the bridge, yeah. Uh, uh, there's many more bridges now than when I were there, but uh, it's still it's a, driving India to honking. I, I just saw Million Dollar Arm yesterday, the movie, and uh, the, the guy was talking to Texas, Why does everybody honk? <laughs> and it's actually okay. because, because they like to. Honking's yeah. big in India. It sounds good. Even today on, on on highways going 60 miles an hour, they're still honking honking away oh, wow. as they pass every car. Well, <laughs> New York City had to had to do a ban on honking of horns. I guess they won't ever do that in India, though. The cabbie should go to India so they can so they can start doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long did this this book take to complete, uh, Professor? Once I started doing it, it was a three year process. Um, I catch my three basically two summers, and then the third year I actually was working on it during the school year. I had, but I, we spent the summers in Cape Cod, and I would closet myself in, in a room between around 7 and 12 in the morning. Mm. My wife will tell you she couldn't get me out of there. And it was sort of an obsessive process um, during the summers. And 
during the third year, the third summer, I've gotten close to completion. So during the school year, I I put time aside for my teaching and uh, to finish it. So it was a three-year project. It was a lot. I've written this is my fourth book. Um, the other books didn't take this long. I'll tell you. Incredible. But this was a labor of love. And and in telling your love story, how would you entice someone to get a copy of your your account of Indian Summer, a love letter to India? Well, if you have any interest in India, um, even if you're not planning on going, but any understanding of a very different and wonderful culture, and is now the sixth largest trading partner in the world, it's good to read my book. In fact, my university system, University of Carolina system, the president of the system for 16 schools, has made a directive to all the schools to start trying to get developed programs of India, which is one of the things I did when I was in India last time, trying to, I went to social work schools to see if we can make a connection with them because it is recognized that India is, is one of the, uh, India and China are two of the countries that we have to take seriously in terms of the economic development of the world and, and our economic development. So if you have any interest in India or you're planning on going there, this book will give you a good sense of what India is all about and also a sense of, you know, uh, it's sort of a, it's a combination of a history of what happened in the Vietnam War era, which was when I was in the Peace Corps, and bringing it up to date, which is at the end of the book, I go back to the village in, 19, you know, 45 years later and, and talk about the people, and some of them were still there. Um, so you, you get a past and a present, and the past and present are pretty much are pretty similar. Um, so it, it will give you a, a sense of, what is my view of why India is so, uh, the karma of India is so important um, and how mystical and wonderful the country is uh, once you get a sense of it. So for that reason, that people could pick it up. Was your book one that was absolutely a breeze to write or were there some challenges? No, it was, it, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done. I mean, writing a textbook is easy, which I've done before, but this was hard because I, I, I'm, I'm not a Faulkner or <laughs> anyway. Um, so I was trying hard. I once had a professor who said to me, one of my professors in grad school, if I wrote like I talked, people would read it. So what I was trying to do was, uh, was write the book as if I was telling my stories to people. And that was a challenge. Um, and also I, I, I couldn't put as much conversation in the book as I wanted to because we were speaking in Canada, <laughs> so I did have some conversation in it, but I was mostly telling stories. So it's, a, it's sort of a storytelling experience, which was a challenge. But um, hour after hour, I wrote and rewrote and rewrote, and uh, had a lot of help from my friends and from editors. So what you see is the culmination of that. Fascinating read, Indian Summer. A Love Letter to India and the Story of India 29. Our author, Dr. Arthur J. Frankel. Dr. Frankel, where can my listeners get copies of this great read? Well, it's available from Author House, um, the website there, but you can also buy it on Amazon.com, and also if you're in India, you can buy it on Amazon.in. Um, it'll take about three weeks to get to you amazon.in but it will get to you and the price is about the same as it is in America of course amazon.com they send it to you within a day or two or three or four um, it's in hardback and softback also can be downloaded onto the you know those apps that you can uh, read on the iPhone or iPad or computer excellent uh, Dr. Frankel do you have a website also that highlights your, no, your love story yet? No, I, I just, no I don't I just have a 
my own website, University. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure there will be a follow-up on this particular story, I'm guessing. Is there something in the works? Not right now. I'm still recovering from <laughs> getting this out and with, enjoying, the, you know, enjoying the, the experience. Well, with your obvious fascination and love for India, there is bound to be something in the future. So when that happens, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you about it. Okay. Thank you for Thank joining you so me today. Jay. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, she'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today, written by author Lou Potempa, has the title, Best Knowing Joy, Beyond Trust to Truth. And I welcome Lou from Texas, near Houston today. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. This is a curious title. You have a background not as an author, uh, at least not in your past history, but all of a sudden decided, I want to write a book, and I'm going to title it Best Knowing Joy. Tell me the story behind the title and what inspired you to write your book. Well, it's a, a long answer, but let me give you a, an abbreviated uh, version. Uh, I had, a, had, a, had a, a knowing, if you will, back when I was nine years old, namely that I would be a successful businessman of the, of the world. That was right at the end of the Second World War, and, of course, uh, I, I retired here uh, about, about ten years ago, and I did achieve that objective, and, and along the way there were a, a good many uh, developments. And, and looking back uh, and trying to provide uh, answers to my, uh, my, my grandkids about you know, about life and, and how things had developed for me and where my success came from, uh, I, I noticed a, a pattern, a trend, and what uh, ultimately came of that was a lot of uh, uh, analytical thinking resulting in some very important insights. And uh, ultimately, it came down to the fact that I now have a, a, a compulsion, if you will, to, 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 to do just this, uh, I would like everyone to be uh, enabled to empower themselves, to realize their individual potential, achieve their will, and experience joy. <clears throat> now that that ties with the uh, with the title, namely, knowing is uh, kind of a shorthand, if you will, for 
uh, awareness and understanding. Best is at the indication of where our individual potential should take us. And joy is the, the result of bringing about a, achievement and manifesting in, in our lives. So what, I'm, what the book is about basically then is uh, exercising my will to provide everyone with the ability to empower themselves in that way. And what that would do is benefit themselves, benefit others, and, and further would, would manifest uh, truth, which is uh, another way of saying looking for, uh, for, for, for freedom of expression uh, in, our, in our lives and to the seeking of higher goals. And I will mention to my my listeners, uh, you have an engineering background, so detail is something that you enjoy. You've also worked on rocket ships and other exotic things in your lifetime. This one is uh, more esoteric. Uh, did you, in this book, include some uh, some specific exercises that would help people uh, empower them to to realize their goals? Uh, I have, and and the context to think about that is that, in, in my mind, the, the scope of, of the information in the book is directed towards everybody, everybody on the, uh, on the planet. Uh, you know, we're all, we are all inheritance of a, of a legacy that, that came about from the, the creation of the universe, if, if you will. And what that, that does is it provides us with the, uh, the ability to, uh, to exercise, focus our, our consciousness in, in such a way that um, we can provide for a, what I call a cascading empowerment, one that takes us from the, uh, the, the, the rejection of, uh, of negativity, if, if you will, uh, into a, a, a position where with awareness and understanding we can move through vision and ultimately to, uh, uh, to, to our purpose which is fully developing and using our, our, our potential and bringing about truth and, and achievement in the process of, of doing it. And there are, uh, the way that the book is, is constructed, there's text, there are charts, there are symbols, there are protocols, uh, there are uh, numerous specific ways of, uh, of, of approaching this focus of consciousness that are, are made, made available. And, uh, importantly, there's a there's an example uh, that I use. It's the the only a, the example, but it's a very powerful one, where the the process was uh, applied by my wife and me uh, when she was uh, suffering from from atrial fibrillation and required a an, an operation. And we went through a a process, which is basically what the the best knowing joy process is, which ultimately Got, got her to successful surgery and a, and a complete cure. So uh, the, the package uh, of, uh, of different methods, uh, approaches, uh, ways of going about bringing this cascading empowerment to, uh, to fruition are provided in the book. It's, it's really a, a, a very, very potent uh, manual of, of instruction to bring about something which is extremely uh, in, important in terms of scope as an individual and then collectively as, uh, as, as a society in the world. You talk about controlling time. What is that all about? The, the, the biggest impediment 
to uh, realizing what it is that I'm, I'm talking about uh, is the uh, impact of the past time within our lives. And uh, I can, I can uh, associate this at, at three levels with respect to the, uh, to the journey that, that, that we make uh, through the uh, best-knowing-joy process. You know, the, the, the first level of negativity are relatively minor. Those are, are the, the aspects that uh, uh, come about through our own uh, mistakes, through abuse that we suffer through other people's actions and, and so forth. The, the second level of negativity is once we you know, clear those, uh, we have to deal with matters of uh, vengeance, greed, things that are strongly related to the, uh, to the ego. And then ultimately, as we, we progress through this, uh, this process, we, we get to the, to the point where uh, to really achieve at the, at the level that we are uh, totally capable of, we have to deal with the deception and deceit that's in the world, which is a, a, a negativity of, of, of global proportion. And to put all of this in perspective immediately, uh, you know, the difficulties that we have in the world today, which is in a perfect storm, uh, where there are uh, differences in, in people's views on, on things that stem back hundreds of years and thousands of, of, of years, you know, people don't even know what it is that it is that they're, they're fighting about it at this point as it relates to them specifically. That being the case, um, my, my answer is to control time. And uh, in the book, I give a very specific instruction as to, to how that can be, uh, that could be done. It could be done by, by, by anyone. It's, it's, it's a matter of once focusing the consciousness in a particular way. And uh, in, in the book, I, I discussed just how that's, how that's done. Uh, Lou, as you were writing your book, you must have had a target audience in mind, someone that you felt would gravitate towards this compact book. Yeah, well, my, my audience is everyone who's reached the... Uh, a degree of mature consciousness, and let me let me pick the age 12 to 15, mm. uh, and there will be individuals who will be even earlier. At the, and uh, it, it matters not what their their age is, but what's Im- important is that uh, in the in the book uh, I've prescribed text which gets into a, a detail of, of the how all of this came about and what the specifics of the process are. Uh, there are charts that summarize in basic, uh, uh, very simple uh, language where the, the, the techniques are, are at. There are symbols, and I'm a very strong believer in the, the, the visual aspect of things, and we have, uh, have five symbols that have, have been uh, put together that uh, are described in protocols that uh, indicate how the, the symbols are relevant to the points that we're making and how they, have, how they can be used. So uh, I'm appealing to the com- complete spectrum of the, uh, the age group uh, at every level of understanding and awareness that people happen to be capable of at, at any, any point in, in time. Lou, what do you want the reader to take away from reading Best Knowing Joy? I, I want, want to, to take away that by employing the process that uh, they will 
in, in their own desire and will, discover ways that they can benefit themselves and benefit others. And in the process of, of doing that, they will uh, e experience uh, happiness in their life as they make the things that they are aspiring to and, and looking to in their, their purpose as they bring those to, to reality. So the, the, the notion is that uh, uh, we're, we're moving from a place where there's just intention and potential to a, to a, a, a different level, which on the one hand, has, uh, in, instead of intention, there's aspiring to a higher goal, and then instead of just potential, there's actually manifestation and, and achievement. So that's the, the, uh, the progression and the, uh, uh, the goal that, that I'm looking for in the book. That's basically my, my will at, at this juncture, that the people are enabled through what it is I'm telling them in, in the book, what it is that I'm sharing of, of my own experience and how I have analyzed and, uh, and pro pro provided with insights into what's what's going on and how to make these things happen. Now, in your personal life, I've discovered that as a younger adult, you were a musician of note. Uh, are you still playing the accordion? And if so, what kind of music do you enjoy? Well, the, the short story there is that, uh, uh, and this is important to, to the whole trip, the focus of consciousness. Uh, when I was nine years old, which is right after World War II, my mom and dad spent $1,500 to buy me an accordion. Wow. Uh, it, now, if you're, you're going to figure that with uh, yeah. a 2 or 3% escalation of, of value kind of going forward, you get an idea. But, uh, but the, the, the notion was that uh, uh, I was going to be a, a polka band player. <laughs> and the fact is, I, I became, a, became a, a chemical engineer, and uh, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the process, I, I picked up both uh, vocal and, and, uh, and piano, and uh, it, I spent 25 years as a, uh, uh, a choir director in, uh, in, in two different uh, institutions that I was uh, in, involved with. So uh, there's been an evolution, and my, actually, my, my free time, I, I enjoy jazz piano. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I was going to use a bad pun that polka is on the upswing, as you are aware. It's becoming popular in certain parts of this country, and uh, maybe, you never know, I might see on television playing polka music and being featured as a, as a guest accordionist. Uh, that would be a fascinating, uh, fascinating tale as well. Uh, as you were writing this, were there challenges in getting this completed? Yeah, actually, if you once look at the book, it, it, the, the, the first... Uh, page basically is focused on uh, the huge happening, which I say is the first photon that leaves the Big Bang. So the uh, going from from that to the, the conversation that uh, you and I are having today—that's 13.7 billion years mm. of, uh, of of time that's that's covered—and uh, compressing all of this into uh, 80 pages and something that could be scanned in in uh, in, in 90 minutes uh, was a was a challenge. Uh, I've, I, I've, I've rewritten the book basically uh, four or five times in order to get to where I'm at. And the, the whole idea is that uh, I know, I, I know because I have lived this, that uh, th this can be, can be understood in simple terms. That's, that's been my, my process uh, and my, my desire. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, 
to, to the fact that uh, having condensed it this way, that it's going to be something that uh, everyone can, can wrap their mind around at some level. Uh, Lou, are you planning a secondary follow-up book to this one? Uh, I'll I tell you, since I, I've been thinking about the uh, about the, the consequences and uh, you know the, the fact that we're going to be applying this this process during a time when we have a, a perfect storm in the uh, in in the world. Uh, I've I've come up with a a, a lot of different thoughts uh, regarding the, the application and uh, just how it could be deployed. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, in the Publicity stage that we're in, and kind of passing this uh, this word on, that uh, I'll be able to stimulate a a reaction, a, uh, an, an intertake between myself and, and other people who uh, see ways that this can be successfully uh, used and employed, applied, and uh, uh, and then that will preclude the need for another book because I'll tell you, five years in getting everything. That's as complex as this, down to a, a, a simple uh, explanation in a in a, in a simple, elegant uh, uh, perspective is a, is is a challenge. And uh, I, if, if if it needs to be done, I'll, I'll be there. But I'm uh, I'm hopeful that this uh, this this program that we're we're on will uh, will will get us there with a lot of participation by, by folks that are reading the book. The title of the book: Best Knowing Joy Beyond Trust to Truth. Our guest, Lou Patepa. Lou, where can my audience get copies of your book? Well, they'll be then through Barnes & Noble, Amazon. I'm also dealing with the whole issue of social media and Twitter as vehicles for passing the book on. So there's a... Uh, there's a website that's uh, just about ready for for use, and uh, that will become uh, available uh, most likely under the the name uh, Best Knowing Joy, and uh, that, uh, that that should open the door to uh, any, uh, any any purchase requests that are out there. Fabulous! And uh, listeners, you can get it from your local bookstore by request or by doing a search online under our author's name, Lou Potempa, L O U last name P O T E M. P-A. Lou, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you very much. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker.